and welcome to my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, and it is a nice Tuesday morning. And the reason that I'm recording this right now is that I am in the process of getting ready for a trip to Scotland and to Rome. I'll talk a little bit more about that in this show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. And this episode, like everything I do, is uh, is made possible thanks to my patrons. Over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick, there is a small but really enthusiastic community of people that uh, through their monthly donations sometimes it's uh, it's a dollar a month sometimes it's five dollars some people have a little bit more to spend so they they sponsor me with a bit more but they they enable me to do this work and they also help me to keep this completely advertisement free and i'm super grateful for that because there's nothing more irritating than advertisements when you just want to listen to the host and to the the, the content and you don't want to be bothered by you know food boxes or or mattresses <laughs> who cares so thanks 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 if you are a patron i really appreciate it and if you want to chip in and help out as well go to patreon.com slash father roderick as a thank you i will give you an extra podcast every week and uh, you get more information on how to listen to that podcast when you sign up as a patron you know what's going on this is what's happening in your world they said catholics rule we got boston south america the good part of ireland and we're making serious inroads in mozambique baby you've taken your first step into a larger world all right, let's bring you up to speed uh, as to what has been happening in my life. If you want to have a full report, you can listen to my other show, my other weekly show, which is called The Walk. And you can find that over at uh, tridio.com. That's T-R-I-D-E-O.com slash The Walk. Um, but in summary, I've been recovering from this complex infection, which was really crippling, literally. I, <laughs> I could barely walk. That's how much it, much it hurt. Um, the antibiotics are done and I'm now in the transitional period where I formally, officially, I still need to recover. Uh, my body is not entirely uh, back to its uh, original state. However, it's already going so much better. I don't have any fevers anymore. Um, I just noticed that I'm tired a little bit more quickly, but I can still do most of my, most of my work and hopefully this will be it for this year. No more illness, please. Uh, and so I've made the decision yesterday to go on a trip. I was supposed to be in Spain right now. I was supposed to uh, walk to Santiago de Compostela with a group of handicapped people in wheelchairs. That didn't go through. And then all of a sudden I had two weeks where I blocked out everything in my agenda. I was like, so what am I going to do? Because work goes on. I still have about two months to get ready for the next year. I'll try to work in advance for my TV work. And so um, I decided yesterday to go to Scotland. And I'm going tomorrow, which is very scary because I don't think I've ever... Well, no, that's not true. I was, I was about to say I've never planned something this short short in advance uh, but that's not true because I've been going on trips to Rome on a whim uh, just sometimes I would book a flight in the morning and then in the evening I would walk around in Rome and the day before I had no idea that I would be there but I'm going to Rome uh, and to Scotland Rome is planned for next week but for Wednesday I'm traveling with uh, my cameraman Hugo he's also going to direct me and we're going to make a trip we're taking the ferry where we're going by boat 
so that we can take a car with us, which makes it also much easier to go from one place to another, to carry along our equipment. Um, Not to mention that we don't have to rent a car, which also saves a little bit of money. So going by ferry from uh, a port near Amsterdam, we go to Newcastle. From Newcastle, we travel to Oban, um, which is in the west of Scotland. And then from Oban, we're going to visit an island where monks have lived. Because uh, I'm going to try to figure out how how these monks that, that came from the UK, from Scotland and from Ireland, over to the Netherlands and to other countries in Europe... How did they do that? They were so successful, and yet they had no money, they had no followers, they came in a totally hostile environment, and yet they were able to evangelize huge parts of, of Europe. What was their secret? That's going to be the the driving question of this tour of Scotland. And so from Oban in that area, we'll go back to uh, Edinburgh, and, and in and around Edinburgh, there are also some places where these monks have lived. And, well, my my uh, director is going to... Uh, he knows Scotland very well, so he's got an idea on how to film that. We're going to do uh, two... Film two, two travel episodes there. And I'll be back uh, on Tuesday morning. I don't know in what state, because <laughs> this may be very fatiguing. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, and then I hope to immediately go on to Rome where it's the last week of the, of the Synod uh, about the Amazon region. Um, that in itself is not something I'm going to cover because I'm, I don't do news. Um, but it is a time that many people are in Rome that I could interview. And so I'm hoping to do uh, some portraits to film uh, at least on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday and maybe, maybe I can, can do what I did a couple of weeks ago in Rome, when it, or well, a couple of months ago uh, already, uh, where during the summertime I was able to film four episodes, uh, four portraits, basically four interviews. And that was a lot of fun. This was fatiguing, but it's Rome. So it's always, there's always, a, it's always great to be in Rome, even though you have to work from morning till evening. So uh, I hope to be able to do that. And then that uh, that would be bringing me to Rome a week earlier than I than I wanted to, which gives me another week to go out and film. So, eh, I don't know. Uh, it's going to be a very, very busy uh, time, but it also means that maybe next week this show will come from Scotland because, well, I'll be in Scotland, so why not bring you along with me? So both the walk and this weekly show may be specials from Scotland. Um, and I hope you enjoy that. I think you will enjoy that because, well, hey, you, you get to go on a, on a virtual journey. It's all audio, of course. I don't think I'll be able to stream, although you never know. Uh, after all, Scotland right now is still part of the EU. You know, Brexit is uh, is approaching very, very quickly. But right now, I can still stream video from my phone for the same cost as it uh, as as here in the Netherlands because it's all kind of the same. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe I'll even be able to stream the episode. Who knows? Stay tuned, stay subscribed, and um, if there's a new episode, it will pop up automatically in your podcatcher. And with that, it is time for our first segment of the show. And we need to talk about a TV show that I have discovered by accident on Netflix. I was actually not looking for it, but I saw a trailer. And I'm currently in the in, in the process of watching the first season. And, oh, it's a gem. It is a gem. Um, I wanted to review the Joker movie. 
because everybody has already seen it except for me but I just have, didn't have time to go watch it because well I was ill <laughs> I do not like movies they're predictable like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father not liking movies is like not liking puppies they're fine I just get bored and never make it to the end you know you need a movie education you need a movication I'm gonna give it to you Actually, there are two things that I'm currently watching. Uh, one has to do with my trip to Scotland because we're going to be in that same area where they filmed uh, Hogwarts. And uh, you know that, that large parts of uh, the stuff on location that you see were filmed in Scotland uh, and in England as well. And so we'll, we'll be actually quite near some of the places where they filmed for Harry Potter. Uh, but I won't have time to go and visit but what I, what I plan to do is, while I'm in Scotland, I already want to scout for my next trip to Scotland, where I do... Um, one of my dreams, and I will talk about that a little bit later in the episode, is to go film a, a true documentary about Harry Potter and about the Christian influences of the Harry Potter story. We always hear negative stuff coming from Christians when, it, when Harry Potter is concerned. There's always these warnings of alarmed parents that there are actual spells in Harry Potter. If only... Goodness gracious. <laughs> but no, they don't work. I can tell from experience, having read the books and all. Um, but there's always there's always this negative vibe about Harry Potter. And you know that I'm uh, very much convinced that Harry Potter is in its core a very Christian story, very inspired by the gospel, and with a lot of Christian themes. And it's always been my dream to demonstrate that in a documentary. Uh, so that's one of my one of my dreams for next year, to be able to do that. So, it, it, because I was kind of in the, in the mood for Harry Potter, I've been watching, uh, I've been re-watching um, the first part of the Deathly Hallows episode, which is, incidentally, filmed mostly outside. It's one of those few Harry Potter movies where most of the movie is filmed in real landscapes. And it's a gorgeous movie. It's, a, it's kind of an awkward movie. It's the, the, the one that feels the least like traditional Harry Potter. Because it's not, there's nothing at Hogwarts. There are a few spells, but most of it is very, very, um, almost, almost accidental. There's not much happening in that movie. It's all about character development. This is all about this quest of the, the, the three friends, Harry, Hermione, and Ron, trying to find these fragments of the soul of, of Voldemort. Voldemort has, uh, has divided his own soul in, in objects. And, uh, and they need to destroy those objects before Voldemort can gather everything together and, you know, become basically a, a sort of, a, a, you know, the equivalent of the Emperor in, in Star Wars. <laughs> and so they are looking everywhere to find these objects that contain parts of the soul of, um, of Voldemort. And so this is a very much a kind of a travel movie. Um, I watched it on Blu-ray, um, and I realized that I'd never watched the Blu-ray. I've watched the movie when it came out in the in theaters, and I never watched it again. So now I'm watching uh, an enhanced version. It's pretty cool what they did. So there, there is a version, uh, an extended version, where every once in a while you will see um, commentary. So the directors, the actors, the um, special effects people, they'll interrupt the movie and they'll say, hey, 
you're watching this, but we actually worked on this uh, for for years, and this is how we kind of prepared this scene in the previous movies, and this is how we did it. Sometimes you can click on your uh, remote control and get a, a full like mini documentary about certain aspects, and I have to say, I, it only enhances my admiration for what they've been able to pull off, and a lot of the um, I think the what makes that first part of the Deathly Hello so special is the quality of the acting. And you can tell that this is the harvest of all these years where they've been working with the same crew, the same actors. These days started off as kids. And they're real they're friends, they're good friends. And that is what gives these scenes so much pertinence. Because you can tell that they've grown so much and they know each other so well that that that, that just um is, is visible in the way they portray their characters on screen. So really interesting, kind of an oddball uh, uh, movie in, if you look at the, the, the entirety of the, the episodes. And the second Deathly Hallow movie is very different, where it's all about the battle and it's full of special effects. And this movie is almost like, wow, is, is this Harry Potter? It looks like, I know these kids, but they're, this is basically a one big advertisement for, for Scotland. That's how beautiful it is. Um, very gloomy also, very, very, almost a bit uh, meditative, uh, but really, really good. Um, so that was the first thing that I've been watching. Now, this, the, the, this series that I want to recommend to you is on Netflix, and it's called Raising Dion. And it is a superhero series, but nothing like what you would expect. The superhero movies, the Mar be it Marvel or DC, they all focus on adult characters. And it's almost always starts with an origin story where someone is uh, in a dire situation, discovers that they've been graced with uh, superpowers through radiation, through uh, spider bite. Well, you know the drill. And then there is usually a supervillain that they have to confront, and that's the basically the third act is uh, how they manage to, um, to overcome this, this evil uh, creature. Raising Dion is none of that. It is about a mother uh, trying to raise Dion, a little kid, eight years old. In reality also, the actor is eight years old. Um, and the father has just recently died trying to save someone in a freak storm. And at the beginning... Is just, you see the struggles of this mother with this very cheerful kid, super, you know, really um, a kid. And it's, the acting blows me away. This kid, Dion, is playing so believably. I mean, you, you don't believe that this is actually an actor. Uh, that's how well this is played. This is maybe one of the best kids actors that I've ever seen. And what happens in the first episode is that the mother discovers that this child has very strange superpowers. He is, like, and, and they discover it by accident. The kid is uh, eating his uh, morning cereal. So it's all happening in a very recognizable situation. The mother is uh, has just been fired. And, of course, she has got great concerns. The kid also has asthma, so he uh, his medication um, is, is expensive. And because she's fired, now all of a sudden there's also a financial problem because these inhalers are, if you're not insured, are like 70, 80 bucks a piece. And of course, the, the kid just needs that. And so it also shows you uh, kind of the reality of the situation in the in the US where you don't have that universal health care that we enjoy over here in Europe in most countries. And, and you see what all of a sudden this is a major problem. And so 
there's this stressful situation at home. The kid is eat, eating his morning cereal, and then he needs to go to school, but he's eight years old, so he doesn't want to, and he keeps procrastinating. And then the moment he needs to rush to get his to put his shoes on, the the bowl of cereal flips into the air. He knocks it over, and then the kid turns around, and all the pieces of cereal and the 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 milk is floating in midair, almost completely frozen in time. And then he, 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 and then his mother comes in and everything falls to the ground. And that's the first time that we see that this kid has a very strange superpower. And, um, and at first the mom does not realize that that's going on. But she discovers that uh, in, an, in a second incident. And then she's like, nobody believes her. He, she, she has a sister who uh, is trying to help her. Um, and, uh, of course, the sister thinks that she's losing it. And, 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 and the mother, too, is a great actress. And then bit by bit, they start to build the mythology of that first season. There's more going on. The, the, the father didn't die um, as, as a result of a tragic, you know, uh, failed attempt to save someone. There's much more uh, going on there. In, 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 and so... But what makes this so relatable is how well it's acted. And I, I was like, this, is, this must have been written by women. I just had a feeling this is written by mothers who know what it is to raise an eight-year-old. And then I look at the credits, and lo and behold, the, the writer is a, is, is a woman. The director is a woman. The producer is a woman. Um, and this, and, and, uh, this, this is not um, like to do something politically correct. But you can tell from the story that this is written from the perspective of mothers. And that is what makes it work. I don't think that a man could write a story like this. Um, and it is so heartwarming. I was like, there were really moments, every episode, I'm just looking at that, I'm thinking, this is this most charming most relatable, most normal superhero story that I've ever seen. But the kid steals the show, um, and you you care for for the characters not because of the superpowers, but because they're so relatable. This could be family, you know. This is something that any parent with kids can can understand and can relate to. And ultimately, it's not even about the super the superpowers and the mythology of what's going on. And of course, there is a threat. That, that this kid needs to somehow uh, solve. And, and so this, this little kid is like a, like a um, kind of an archetype of little Jesus, you know? He's, he's way too young, and yet he needs to save the universe. Or Anakin, Anakin Skywalker, young Anakin in the first movie, in the, in the, the, the Phantom Man. Same thing. His mother starts to realize that this kid has, you know, it has a calling, and he's supposed to become the savior of the universe, and she's just super worried, and doesn't you know doesn't know how to handle that as a mom so there 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 are definitely some some typical you know hero story archetypes here at work but it's done in such a such a great it's written in such a great way and ultimately it's not the problem is not that this kid has superpowers no the problem is how do you raise a kid <laughs> you know basically all kids have superpowers they all um, the, 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 you can never really manage kids you basically, what you do as a parent is you adapt. And, and your kid has the gifts that it has. Um, and you're only par partially responsible for that. But most of what, what makes the life of a parent so challenging is that 
your kid is another human being. It's not a robot. You can program. Kids do unexpected things. They have unexpected... Um, they, they, they may have uh, disabilities. They may have uh, a, a certain temperament. Uh, you may have a kid that has autism or is on the autism specter. None of that you can foresee as a parent. So what you do is you try to manage it as, as well as you can and you often fail. Because kids are kids. That is what the series is about. So, in a way, the super here, the the superpowers that this kid has are just a metaphor, I think, of what makes your kid so unique and sometimes difficult to handle. Um, so go watch it. It's again, it's called Raising Dion. Uh, I've watched about four episodes now, and it is amazing. And I truly, there are also for the geeks. In there, there are some really, really cool little hints and little, you know, uh, uh, what you call them, um, like, well, little references to, for instance, to Stranger Things. There are some some really overt references to Stranger Things, and that there is actually a lot of the vibe of what's the of the mythology feels a bit like what they do in Stranger Things as well, and I think it's an, it's a really I've almost seen no reviews of this um i i don't see much chatter on social media about this series but i would say well let me just start this because it is really really worth your worth your while so go check that out it's called raising dion and it's on netflix <laughs> catholics rock Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you're afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Oh, meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And today I want to discuss two types of attitudes that I see among the faithful, the people that uh, believe in God and try to follow Jesus. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than blockbuster video. In my timeline on social media, on Facebook, that's basically where I hang out most of the time, I see two types of people. Um, and it's a bit schematic, of course. We're all kind of, we're, no one is black or white. We're all gray. But you see two types of behaviors uh, that result in very, very different types of posts, discussions, and everything. On the one hand, you have the people that um, are often complaining or they're worried, or they're angry, um, and they post uh, about um, presidents that they can't stand. They post about popes they don't really tolerate that much, or that they worry are going to destroy the church. They post about bishops that are, you know, either they're heroes or they're mortal enemies. And when they these people react, it's often they, they jump into the debate uh, and they're extremely concerned about the situation in the world. Um, they're, they're, they really um, want to, they want to fix things. They want to fix the world because it's broken. It's so broken and I'm so worried about that. It's broken and it's, uh, and everybody needs to know that it's broken and we need to fix it. There's a lot of um, tension in, in, in those people, in, in their behavior. There's a lot of um, uh, restlessness. Um, there's a lot of um, 
a lot of worries, a, a lot of pain also, um, and stress. And then I have a, a, another type of people that I see um, that fills my timeline. These are the people that uh, share stuff that makes them happy, things that make them cheerful and it makes them laugh. Like I have a number of people that uh, sometimes post, if they find these amazing little videos of toddlers <laughs> wreaking havoc or, or puppies that are just making you uh, smile and, and, and weep at the same time because it's so, it's just cuteness overload. Uh, there are people that, um, that, that share things that are happening in their own neighborhood or in their parish uh, where they've been uh, organizing things and uh, there was youth camp. And, um, and, and you don't see that much worry there. Of course, it, these are people just like you and me. They're watching the news. They may have really, they may be praying for the things that, that worries them. But it's almost as if the things that worry them uh, only motivate them to seek the positive side and to post about that and to share not just what's going wrong, but, but mostly what, 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 what gives us energy, what gives me joy in life, what, what gives me hope. And I think both are addictive. You can't get addicted to negativity, to worries. You can get addicted to outrage. It's, it's uh, fueling our, our, our political debate. It's, it's fueling our, our, our online conversations. And, and, and it kind of feels good to, to, be, um, to, be, to have indignation, to, uh, you know, to be able to criticize. Have you seen what that dude or person or... And, and it makes us, in a certain way, it's a, a little bit of the reward is... I can point at someone so I don't have to look in the mirror. It makes me feel good because at least I would, if I were president, if I were pope, if I were bishop, if I were a priest, I would make things work. I would do it totally differently if, if only people would listen to me. So, you know, th th there, is, there is a desire there, I think, for the world to be right. Absolutely. And, and so I don't want to uh, be too negative about that people. O although I wonder if the addiction to outrage and indignation, if that's truly going to help you or if it's going to help the world. I kind of doubt it. it. It sometimes depresses me. I have this filter on, on Facebook um, and it's called, I think, the Fluff, something with Fluff. Let me look that up here. Um, it's, a, it's an extension that I've installed in uh, my Chrome browser that works together with Facebook. Facebook, of course, uh, sometimes its algorithm algorithm thrives on indignation and on, you know, angry faces and on, on, on controversy uh, because that's what riles up people and they start, you know, debating and it's interaction. Um, but I have uh, the extensions called Facebook Purity um, and it's the fluff-busting... Let me look up the page of this extension. You, you should try it out. Fluff-busting fluff purity. Because they can't really use Facebook in their title because copyright probably. So, But it's called FB purity. But FB stands also for Facebook purity. What that does is it, it allows you to filter certain words. So when in 2016 
the elections were going on and there was so much controversy on Facebook and there was so much strife and woke warfare between, you know, I want to vote for this candidate, I want to vote for that and if you vote for that person and you're evil and I... Um, I just entered a whole lot of words that if the extension notices that word, I won't see that post. And all of a sudden my Facebook uh, environments turned into serenity and positive filled with puppies and cakes and, and recipes and, and geek stuff. And it was so, it was great. I was like, all of a sudden Facebook turned into a place where I would, where I wanted to hang out. And instead of getting depressed by Facebook, it just gave me energy and it made me happy because the, the, what remained were basically the people that made worry just as much as you and I about uh, the world in which we live but they were trying to kind of counteract it, to medicate or maybe even self-medicate, and that too can become a uh, an addiction, with with funny stuff, with 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 uh, things that make you happy, th inspiring things. There's a lot of inspiring quotes and videos that popped up, and that may the risk of that is if you're only posting puppies, that makes you feel good, but does it really help the world? <laughs> Does it really change anything? Maybe not. I mean, you can get addicted to puppies because you just want to, uh, well, you just want to self-medicate. You want to in insulate yourself to the negativity. And understand me, there's nothing wrong with with puppies in your feed or or kittens or anything. That's great, and cakes and whatnot. But I think what we always need to what we need to seek is the middle ground. What is the what is the attitude behind our behavior? What are we afraid of? Or what are we trying to hide from? And if we understand that, if we go to the core of that, and how, well, how do we relate to the world around us, that is what is going to keep us balanced and will help us to share what really helps other people. And for me, the key word in this is, is gratitude. Uh, gratitude is a very important uh, Christian concept. I, um, the, the Greek word eucharistia that we use for the Eucharist, for Mass in, in the Catholic tradition, it means giving thanks. And it is not by accident that Jesus puts that in the center of our Christian lives. Uh, during the Last Supper, when he shares the bread and says, this is my body, and at the end of the meal or after the meal, he shares a cup of wine and says, this is my blood, he adds to that, do this in memory of me. And he even makes sure that, they, that the, 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 his disciples do that by, after the resurrection, um, finding them on their way to Emmaus. And he does it with them. He breaks the bread and he shares the cup. And at that moment they realize, oh, this is Jesus who told us, do this in memory of me. That is the, that is the scriptural foundation of uh, of our, our Sunday practice in, in the Catholic Church of celebrating the Eucharist. It is this, apparently Jesus wanted us to always remember him with a thankful heart and to express our gratitude to God, to his Father. And uh, that attitude of gratefulness, I think, is perhaps the best remedy against hopelessness or against 
self-medicating, you know, let's numb ourselves with, with, uh, with puppies and, and, and cakes and, <laughs> and food. Um, or worse, um, right now, painkillers. You know, there's this whole crisis that we have in, in the Western world where people self-medicate and get addicted to alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, marijuana, uh, or, or, or painkillers. All of that, I think, is, is, is a, a reaction to the world around us that is so threatening, that is so painful, the things that we don't want to have in our lives. But, of course, it's never, it's never the solution. What really helps us is to change our fundamental attitude in life. And gratitude, I think, thanksgiving... We're getting closer to Thanksgiving. We're, we're approaching the months of, of the, the, the November, December. Um, giving thanks is doing a, a number of things. It makes you uh, realize that no matter what goes wrong in the world, what goes wrong in your life, in politics, there's also always something to be thankful about. God never stops giving and especially in the darkest times in history, God has been giving us gifts to strengthen us, to make us realize that he's still there at our side. And that if we have to go through darkness, he will be there right at our side. Look at all these stories about the, the years in the desert uh, with Moses and, and his people. In the m- most difficult moments, God provides. He gives them food. Uh, you know, the manna that they find in the morning where that helps them to bake bread. Uh, the, the birds that fall from the sky, literally, that they can cook or, uh, or roast. Um, the water that flows from the rock where, where Moses, you know, kicks the rock with his staff and then there is a, a source of water. Constantly, God gives these little signs of his presence and that has not stopped. That is also true in our lives and it and that is both comforting maybe even more than puppies because the the virtual puppies that we post they're not our puppies they're just there for two minutes and then we can click on the next puppy but it's ultimately not a solution but if we realize if we if we train ourselves to look at the gifts that we receive the things that we take for granted but actually are not ours like our health that's one of the things that i learned when i fell ill uh, in the past few weeks it's like you take that for granted that you can run marathons and that you can work and, and go on trips and go to Rome. But if you're in bed with, with almost 40 degrees uh, Celsius fever and you're crippled and you can't barely walk because of the infection in your lower body, that's when you realize, well, wait a minute, that is health is a gift and it's a gift that I need right now. And I've been praying like, God, please make me healthy again. And now... Uh, two weeks later, and thanks to the doctors, of course, it's a, I wasn't cured by a miracle, but definitely, I mean, I still see that even if I'm, I'm helped by a doctor and a doctor, the, the prescription made me healthy, it's still a gift. It's still something that I'm grateful for. And so this past Sunday, I celebrated Mass out of my intention there was to say thank you that I'm on my feet again that I can celebrate this Mass. And um, 
And I, I really, when I was still in bed, I realized I need to be so much more grateful for the times, for the days that I am healthy and that I'm able to do all this stuff. Instead of complaining about everything that goes wrong or complaining about the stress, why not say thank you that I can do this? Thank you that I can be in stress about good things that I'm doing. Um, I also realized that when I was visiting my dad last Sunday, I talk about this on the, on the, the walk as well, where I've been praying before my, my father was uh, um, was operated upon and had surgery. I was praying that he could keep his leg and that he would, you know, not be as confused as he was again. And I even went to Lourdes and I prayed there and I lit a candle and I asked Mary for her protection and for her help from my parents. And my father did lose his leg and he got into this delirium. And now he's in a, in a, in a home... On a, in a closed section there, and he needs to get permanent care um, because, well, dementia has not, has, not, has not gone away. It's only getting worse. And so from, I, I could choose if, if I, I was constantly, you know, in this negative mood of, of worrying, of complaining about the things that go wrong, there is, I have plenty of reasons to do that. And everybody would understand. Yeah, of course you're depressed because you're dad and this and that. But then I was visiting my dad on Sunday and I saw how cheerful he is. How much he enjoyed that I was coming along and, uh, and, and we had a cup of coffee and there was cake and the cake was good. It was homemade cake there by one of the nurses and it was great cake. And he was just cracking jokes. He was having a good time. I... I I was able. I took a picture of him, and t- that is my dad. That is the best version of my dad. That's how I re- remember my dad from when I was young. It's always, I, we, my dad is a funny guy, and he liked to joke and he liked to laugh. And he never watched television except for one thing: French comedies. And just yesterday or Sunday, he reminded us that one of his favorite movies was was made by Jacques Tati, who is a genius filmmaker, uh, a comedy uh, filmmaker in, in France, who made these black and white, kind of almost absurdist movies where um, just things would just constantly go wrong. And But it was filmed with this kind of tongue-in-cheek type of humor, very slow, very... I'm not sure if 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 if, uh, if that would work in any culture, but my father would just he st- I remember him he would get these fits of laughing and he wouldn't stop laughing, um, uh, and then later on he became a fan of um, uh, all the gendarmerie uh, movies with uh, Louis de Funès, who's also a great comedian, a French comedian who would who actually resembled my dad quite a bit. My father could also be this just constantly super stressful and. Uh, if one thing goes, if it rains, it pours. That's kind of the, but but then my father, when he saw that those stressful situations it, with Louis de Funès and those those comedic French movies, it would make him laugh so much. And that's how I remember my dad as someone who was uh, uh, he could be very strict, and uh, he could be not he was he wasn't always smiling, but he could laugh and he loved to joke, and. It's almost as if that father, thanks to everything that happened, even thanks to the dementia, that father is emerging again. And, and because he doesn't follow the news anymore and uh, he doesn't always, he's not always aware of what's going on, 
it's almost as if there there are no that not that many reasons to worry. Of course, he still is sometimes in a difficult situation, and they, there are fellow patients that can cause a lot of uh, uproar. He has his own medical issues, and uh, and he's sometimes confused. But when he's in in um, let's say a more when things are tough, it's just in that moment, and once the problem is gone, it's also gone from his memory. And he becomes his cheerful self. And so the, a lot of people have commented on that photo that I posted it on Facebook. And they say, that he's got this great smile. And, and that you don't have that smile from a stranger. That is your smile as well. And I realized that. And I was like, and that, again, uh, being with my dad made me realize how grateful I am that I am my father's son. And that one of the things that I, that I inherited from him is his smile and his sense of humor and his love for comedy. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm such a privileged guy that I have a father like that. And maybe when I am his age and I'm old and I start to lose my, my senses, I hope that what remains is my smile and is my sense of humor because that makes a lot of things bearable. And so it's this, this, uh, this feeling of gratitude. Um, I won't say optimism because that's, that can also be naivete. But it's this sense of, of, like, life is never just bleak. My country is never just evil. <laughs> that's, that's maybe one of the reasons that I've still not seen the, the Joker movie, because I've heard from most people that's seen it, it's, it's like, yeah, it's very well, well played and it's very well acted, but, man, I was depressed when I left the, the movie theater. Um, I, right now, it, I, I need positive things that, that warm my heart, that help me smile. And that's why I was talking about uh, Raising Dion, because that's a, that's a series that I watch it and I have a smile on my face. It's like, oh, I love this. This is really so heartwarming to see these people. And they too have their struggles, but there's always this hope. That's what I love about superhero stories. It's, a, it's all about hope. And that's maybe why I'm never, ne I've never been a fan of the, of the kind of the darker Marvel stuff. Because a Batman... I cannot stand his guts. <laughs> I would not be friends with Batman, I can assure you. I was like, come on, cheer up, man. Why wear that dark mask? And it's all so dark. Look at the bright side. Come on, you've got, you're rich. You, you, you can, you can uh, do all these cool stunts. Come on, cheer up. <laughs> and the Joker is even worse. <laughs> anyway, so that, that, but that's just me. But I've noticed that, um, that having this attitude of gratitude helps me to also be balanced in the things that I post. I could have posted a picture of my dad in a wheelchair looking sad and, uh, and, and then basically ask for prayers because, oh, it's so tough. But I instead opted to post a picture of my dad smiling because that is, I think, who he truly is. And I've noticed that that smile helps other people to also smile. If my dad can smile even though he's lost his mind <laughs> kind of almost well he's, he's he's in a state of dementia and he's lost his leg and he's got a lot of other physical handicaps if my dad can smile then i can too and you may be able to 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 smile as well all right that's that's it for today let's talk about books <laughs> when did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics last night the packet the extraction theory papers Am I the only one who did the reading?
I finished uh, the um, the the bio- autobiography by um, Louis Theroux. Learned a lot from it. Really inspired me in my own work as a program maker. And I've started to read another autobiography by another uh, filmmaker, writer, uh, comic book uh, uh, writer that I greatly admire, and that is Michael Straczynski. Michael Straczynski is, um, for me, the hero because he wrote Babylon 5, which is the greatest science fiction series ever made. And he's been one of the few science fiction writers for TV that has been able to completely finish his project, his Babylon 5 project. He wrote everything in advance. He wrote almost every episode except for a few people, I think, that he asked to write one particular episode. But he was able to completely finish that story arc. And uh, I'm currently also watching um, Deep Space Nine. And Deep Space Nine really, I think, inherited... Uh, the 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 legacy of Babylon Five, um, the, this this overarching um, mythology that was in Babylon Five has been, I think, a main inspiration for Deep Space Nine, and there are very uh, huge similarities between the two series. So, if you like Deep Space Nine, if you never checked out Babylon Five, go watch Babylon Five. You will not regret it. There and actually, I think that Babylon Five is much denser much richer in its writing than Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine still has to kind of work with the parameters of of Star Trek. You can't have too much conflict. It's always have to be this uh, kind of this have this utopian um, thri- uh, this drive. You know, it's all going to be okay because this is Star Trek and we need to wrap up the, the tension as soon as we can. In Babylon 5, there's much more drama. It goes much deeper. And there is even an online uh, commentary that uh, Michael Straczynski has contributed to tremendously. I think it's kind of the Babylon 5 archives or something like that. And it is almost a scene-by-scene written commentary on every episode of all those seasons of Babylon 5 explaining how scenes were written, what is going on, what is the symbolism of stuff. And it is so incredibly rich. Uh, that and, and just doing that, watching Babylon 5 and reading per episode that commentary... I mean, I just cannot believe the quality of writing uh, that Michael Straczynski uh, did with with Babylon Five. Later on, he went. He wrote uh, Sense Eight, which was this kind of um, strange, almost experimental series uh, on Netflix, which was directed by the Wachowskis. Um, so the the the, the two. Uh, uh, originally brothers, now sisters, uh, because they changed uh, their uh, um, uh, their physiognomy. Let's put it that way. Um, uh, so they wrote this very um, progressive series, which I, you know, I admired because of the writing, but I hated because of the explicit scenes in there, both of violence and nudity. Uh, but one thing I have to give that series: it was very well constructed, and it was brilliantly written i just don't like the t- the t- it's just a little bit too much oh actually it is just too much for for me and for a lot of other people that that series got canceled but michael straczynski uh, has also written a lot for uh for i think for marvel a lot of the great series uh that have also inspired the marvel uh, movies and and the, the the mcu that we currently enjoy um were inspired by by straczynski and written by straczynski 
He's just recently released his autobiography, uh, Becoming Superman. And that's about him. He literally applies that to himself. He's written also Superman stories, but he sees himself as someone who actually became super, a superhero almost. And so the entire book is written as an origin story. And it's not pretentious at all. In fact, it is almost, you could say, almost a public confession of his hidden past and, uh, and, and the tragedy that, uh, that is underlying his, his work as a writer and also determines how he writes and why his writing always touches upon these very, very strong emotions and, and, and uh, the f most fundamental themes in life. Straczynski is not, uh, is not a believer. He's not a Christian. Um, I think he's more agnostic than an atheist. And yet, it is one of the writers, one of the science fiction writers that has written the most impactful episodes about religion that I have ever seen, both in Babylon 5 and also in other stuff that he wrote. Um, it's someone who, I would say, through the tragedies in his life, has touched upon what truly determines our, our, our uh, human existence, what, 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 what truly counts in life. It brought him on the brink of, of the fringes of our existence. What keeps us human and what not? And what threatens our humanity? And um, that is why I'm reading this book with so much interest. Because you start to understand where he comes from. And it's unbelievable. Michael was killed almost twice by his own mother. He was uh, conceived in a brothel. His father was a horrible abuser. Um, his mother was uh, raising Michael in the most extreme stress that you can imagine, and yet he 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 lived to tell the story. Um, and it's it's uh, it's a story of hardship, uh, but also of growth in and discovery in hardship. It's almost as if the the tragedies in his, in his life made him what he is right now a very successful uh one of the best science fiction writers out there for TV and 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 movie and movies and uh and someone who is shockingly honest in his autobiography um it is very well written as well i'm i'm listening to the audiobook um thanks to story this storytell service that i subscribe to um, it's not written. It's not read by himself. It's re read by a good friend of him, um, but does a great job. Uh, and it is just fascinating. It's kind of hard to listen to, especially the first few chapters about his youth. Man, you you kind of feel for him, and it's you know you could you could it, it's this could be a really dramatic movie. Um, you think that a Joker is full of drama? Well, uh, just li read this book. And, but then it also, the story is going towards this, this strength that he finds in the middle of the stress. And, and how he, um, I mean, it also obviously talks about his you know, experiences while writing Babylon 5 and working in the, in the movie industry. And, and that there is a lot of struggle, but also a lot of unbelievably great moments and insights and... Uh, I can't wait to finish the book and do a full review, also a thematic review about the things that I, I that touched me. 
but right now, I just want to recommend it to you already, Becoming Superman. And if you want to get a, a, a gist of, of uh, the contents of the book before reading it or before purchasing it, um, just Google it in YouTube. Is that a word? Or is that a... Can you say that? Just YouTube it. <laughs> look look for... Uh, he did a number of talks about the book. Um, just so type... If you type in Becoming Superman, Straczynski, you'll come up uh, on some uh, really... Um, not actually uh, those videos are not don't have many views but they're really really interesting because he, he he tells his own personal uh version of the book in a way um and at the same time of course it's promoting the book so he won't spoil everything but it is it's great i i love it and it makes me want to go back and and watch more of babylon 5 because i've never finished the series i have to admit to my shame but uh <laughs> it's really really worth the worth your while so that would be my tip for this week. It's called Raising Superman, and it's uh, written by Michael Straczynski. And you can get both the book and the audiobook on um, the Amazon store. And if you go and do that, why not go to Tridio.com first and click on that Amazon link? That way, it's an easy way to support uh, the work that I do. And now it is time to talk about sci-fi. I see aliens, little aliens from outer space. And how are things in outer Plutonia? How many times have I told you not to wear your space boots in the house? Go to shape, I mean you can donate my body to science fiction. Get your suit on! We need ya! And if, if you allow me, I would like to expand uh, this, this segment not just to the world of aliens and spaceships, uh, but also to the world of fantasy and creatures that only exist in our imagination or in the imagination of these great fantasy writers. Because the first topic I want to mention briefly, just to remind ourselves that this is coming and this is something that we are looking forward to, The Lord of the Rings on Amazon Prime. As you know, Amazon has bought the rights to do a series, a television series of five seasons, at least five seasons, that takes place in the Second Age uh, in Middle-earth. And so this is a time way before, thousands of years before the events in The Lord of the Rings. And it will tell us about Sauron at that time. There are a lot of actually characters that we know from The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit that are already alive. Think of, uh, for instance, um, uh, now <laughs> names escape me. Why I was on it? I was I was on a roll. Um, the character that they skipped from uh, fr in in uh, the Lord of the Rings, the doop um, de doo. Oh, good goodness gracious! Now I need to Google this. It's in my history. I just uh, looked it up. There was a whole list of. Um, of characters that we may actually see in this series. They could uh, do that. Oh, dear, oh, dear. How does this history thing work? I just installed the final version of Catalina, and now it's in this, um, uh, in this dark mode. And it's disorienting, because everything looks so different from, um, from what I'm used to. So here's an article. So what, what do we know about the Lord of the Rings series? We know that it will... Uh, take place in the Second Age, which spans three thousand, three and a half thousand years, and it ends with the first downfall of Sauron. Of course, he will return as the Eye of Sauron in um, 
in the Lord of the Rings. Um, thank you, chat room. Tom Bombadil and Galadriel. That's what, Those are the two that I was trying to... Tom Bombadil, of course, that was so sad that we didn't get to see him in the Lord of the Rings because he's a very important character in the overall mythology of Middle-earth. So, And since we haven't seen him, they can basically depict him any way they want. So they can totally bring that back. Elrond, uh, Goldberry, uh, that's the wife of... Uh, uh, of Tom Bombadil, uh, th they can totally use characters that were already alive. They have also got, got, uh, been granted the license, the creative license, to expand upon the things that, that Tolkien wrote, as long as it doesn't contradict anything in the books. But that gives you a lot of leeway. Um, they're already casting uh, this series, and they are scouting, and that is what makes me so excited. They're going back to New Zealand, and they're currently scouting locations to film this series. Going to be the first season is going to be, I think, twenty or twenty-two episodes. So we're not talking like a, you know, uh, the the what we currently have a lot. It's ten episodes per season, L eleven, twelve. No, this is going to be a twenty-two filmic episodes filmed in New Zealand. Um, this is going to be epic, and I can't be more excited about it. And in fact, uh, earlier on in this episode, I talked about the dreams that I have. What would you, if, if anything would be possible, what would I most love to do? I would love to go back to New Zealand and film a documentary about Middle Earth and its origins in the Catholic thinking of Tolkien. I want to go to Scotland and England and film a documentary about the background of the Harry Potter series. I want to film a documentary about the inspiration for Star Wars and about the future of Star Wars, but also about the foundations of Star Wars mythology and about all these religious themes that are integrated into the story and without which Star Wars wouldn't be Star Wars. I'm currently watching The Clone Wars, and you know what strikes me? I'm still in the first few seasons. What strikes me is what, what the weakness of the Clone Wars is all the fighting. Uh, the, the tons of, of scenes with the battle droids. Roger, roger. And the, the Jedi that show up and do sword fighting and deflect laser beams and stuff. And, and the chases in space. And you know why that doesn't work for me? Because that has always been uh, additional stuff. That's just to fluff it up a little bit and make it science fiction. But what truly makes Star Wars Star Wars is the mythology, is the force. It's all this, you know, this big battle between good and evil. Um, the mysteries also. There's a lot of mystery in Star Wars. And that is what makes it so good. There's nothing worse, I think, for the future of Star Wars uh, than to, to, to explain away the Force, be it by midichlorians or by the wills. And, you know, what I kind of ranted about last time, uh, this, 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 this draft that, that George Lucas wrote for, for the sequels that ultimately wasn't used by Disney. But I think you're breaking the mystery. And a mystery, the mystery as such, is essential in, for Star Wars storytelling. If you explain away everything then there is nothing to look into. 
Whereas if you keep the, the, the mystery around of what is the force, where does it come from? How is it possible that the force does this or that? That's what gives you story content. What does the force do with people and why? And how do people react to the force? That is what makes Star Wars uh, so fascinating. And the moments that you take that away and you re reduce Star Wars to uh, a rehash of stuff that we've already seen, you know, the Death Star chase sequence, laser fights, uh, um, uh, battle droids, that words get that that's where it gets bland and boring and it's like uh been there done that move on and i have to say the more i advance in clone wars the more they they seem to discover that and they go back to what makes star wars star wars it's about the characters it's about the force it's about anakin training uh um uh, his pupil it's about obi-wan trying to train anakin it's about anakin's betrayal of of his uh state as a as a jedi um, it's about heroism, self-sacrifice. Those are the themes, and those are all themes straight from the the great religious stories in our in our culture, in our global culture. If you ask me, what is your biggest dream? Make a documentary about that, because we've seen so many documentaries about the fans, about the the external stuff in Star Wars. But what truly is 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 interesting, and what I I think I can add value to, is to help us understand what makes these stories tick. But then, of course, in order to realize your dream, you, you need to have room and space and means to do that. And that is currently what, I, what I'm working on with our board, our Tridio board. Yesterday, we had a meeting. And I was, uh, we were just going through the different things that we do. So we, were have, we have this Catholic channel that we built in the Netherlands. And that, that is set up without me as much as possible without me i do have a small role and i still it's still very you know in the in its in its initial beginning so but my role is is to make sure that that can be a standalone production standalone channel um i provide the ideas but i don't do the work the second big um thing that i'm doing in on a day-to-day -day basis is the television job and the television job is for me is my training grounds. That's where I learned how to make documentaries. That's where I learned how to interview people, how to film. But it is time to move away from investing my best qualities into that television series and move it to the third area of work for me. And that is what I'm currently doing. It's this international work. It's the work that I do for a global audience. Right now, I'm streaming this live in the morning on 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 youtube and the chat is filled with people from all over the globe from poland from germany from asia from australia new zealand from the united states i don't know why people are awake at this time of the night in the u.s because i'm i'm recording this in the morning but they're there and that audience i think that is where the biggest growth is possible because it's a worldwide audience and that is where I've always been working before I started working in the world of television. And it was always on the fringes of this, you know, the world of geeks and storytelling and fantasy and science fiction and the Bible, uh, religion, philosophy. That is where my strength is. That's where my passion is. And that's where you can tell the greatest stories. But the board yesterday said, well, you can't do all these three things at once. So that Catholic channel... Well, that's already in progress. That, that, that we're working on taking that out of your hands, and that will—that's—that's that's looking really good. 
The television channel, however, doesn't mean you have to stop doing what you do. But with you now have so much experience that you can simplify that. And one of the things that I've been doing this past season is focusing much more on portraits. Instead of trying to convey information or do these, these elaborate travel episodes, I focus on one person. So the, this... Um, uh, not this week, but next week, uh, there is a two-parter of, about a hermit, a, a Dutch priest who uh, traded his parish in the Netherlands, which was really a great parish. He loved working there. But he, he received the call to go to France and to live for the rest of his life as a hermit. And I stayed with him for two days. And the entire two episodes are focused on him. It's a portrait of his life there his vocation, the struggles. And it's filmed in the beautiful environment of the French countryside. His chapel is in the middle of the vineyards. But none of that really matters. That's just decoration, just like the laser fighting in uh, the laser sword fighting in, 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 in uh, Star Wars. But what truly matters is him, his character, his vocation, his story. So it's very much interview-based. And I've discovered that that is actually much easier to produce. And it helps me because it's simplifying and I don't try to cram in just hours and hours and hours of footage. It, it also, as an interviewer, enables me to go much deeper than I did before. And so the board tells me, why don't you make that your strength? Focus on these portraits, make them simpler to film and to edit. And what you gain in terms of what you save in terms of, for, in, for instance, uh, editing costs and time that's even more important and more valuable, pick one of those big documentaries that you want to make and make that documentary on the quality level of Netflix. Make it in 4K. Use drones. Use, you know, make it as good as possible but save your, your, your best quality for your biggest audience. And that is your international audience. And it's not a television audience. And uh, so dare to dream. That's literally what the board told me yesterday. Dare to dream. And I think I, <laughs> I, think I like that. I think I want to do that. I think I'm going to do that. Because that is what is driving me. That gives me a drive to e go even beyond what I can do right now and to share that with you and with the world. That's what I'm called to do and that's what I'm going to do. That's it for this episode of uh, my weekly show. I will keep you up to date on my travels in Scotland and Rome. Next week, we may be in Scotland for this show. I'll see you next week. God bless.